Hey, Murder Made Me Famous fans. I'm Megan Cloherty, host of the new true crime podcast, 22 Hours, an American Nightmare, produced by WTOP in Washington, D.C. Thanks for taking the time to check out episode one. You may have heard about the case we cover in our podcast. It became known across the country as the D.C. Mansion Murders. A D.C. businessman, his wife, their 10-year-old son, and the family's housekeeper were brutally murdered inside their burning home. It was a horrific crime with a complicated trail of evidence that led police to the killer. Thanks for taking the time to give it a listen. DC 911, what is your emergency? Hey, uh, I think there's a house fire at 3201 Woodland Drive. You got smoke coming out of the eaves and the window. Repeat the answer again. It's 3201 Woodland Drive. It's 124 on May 14th, 2015. It was pure chance that Donald Spence found himself at the front door of a burning house in northwest Washington, D.C. that afternoon. He'd just finished a job installing wallpaper at a house in the neighborhood. It was the kind of neighborhood you might want to walk around in, full of beautiful old houses, some might consider them mansions, each with its own ornate style and manicured green lawn. The neighborhood is tucked away behind D.C.'s famed Embassy Row. The home of the Australian ambassador is right there across the street, and the vice president's official residence, just a few blocks away. I just drove up, saw the building, and it's torn out of the uh, overhang. Okay, from which floor is uh, the fire coming from? It's coming from, it looks like it initially from a bedroom, but it's going sweeping across the whole overhang on the front of the house. This is a private stuff. house, single house? It's a private mansion. Benz had just finished eating his lunch in his truck, and he was about to head home. Bored by taking the same turns on the same streets for weeks, he decided on a whim to take a new way out of the neighborhood. And that decision took him right past the house with smoke pouring out of its eaves. Okay, I've already sent the fire department at 3201 Woodland Drive, Northwest. Yes, okay. top of the hill. No one is, seems to have a house. I don't think anybody's in the house, but, uh, but I can't tell. I knocked on the door, and I can hear the alarm going off. And there's a fire. Yeah, and I, it's, the house is like crackling. No flames yet, but the smoke is just pouring out. I drink quick. DC firefighters arrive in a matter of minutes. One of the first trucks to arrive is from Engine Company 28. It's a fire station right near the National Zoo, about a five-minute drive from the massive brick home on Woodland Drive. The first firefighter, Lieutenant Chris Hershey, rushes up the flagstone path to the front door. The address is spelled out in gold lettering on the archway. The door is locked, so he kicks it in. Hershey had no idea he was walking into a crime scene. Standing in the foyer, Hershey sees thick black smoke pouring down the stairs in front of him. It's so heavy that even with his helmet light on, he can't see his hand in front of his face. Firefighters are trained to fight fires from the inside out, to go right to the source of the fire. He starts to climb the staircase. Navigating up the stairs in the dark, Hershey pushes open a bedroom door. He's found it. The whole room is lit up orange. The flames are rolling up the walls. We got a room off on the second floor. There's a line on it. 28, you have a room off on the second floor. You have a line on the fire. These are the fire department radio transmissions from that day. A line means that Hershey has a hose on the fire and he's trying to put it out. There are other recordings from this day, too. They're filled with firefighter jargon. But they help illustrate the chaos of the scene as firefighters discovered this was not a normal fire. More firefighters start to pull up on Woodland Drive and pour into the house. 
looking for anyone who might be inside, overcome by the smoke. Private Michael Ader is one of them. He's not here to fight the fire. He doesn't even have a hose. Just his tank of oxygen and a mask over his face. Facing the thick, black smoke, he heads to the second floor to look for victims. And right away, Ader knows he's on a deadline. His oxygen will only last him about 25 minutes, and it's a very big house. So he knows he needs to work quickly. Ader goes to a different bedroom from the one Lieutenant Hershey is in, working to extinguish the roaring flames. Ader heads across the hall to another bedroom filled with thick smoke. There's no fire here, but he knows there could be a person who couldn't find their way out. So Ader starts what's called a right-hand search. He gets down close to the ground and orients himself by keeping one hand anchored to the wall on his right. Starting at the door, he runs his hand along the wall until he covers the entire room's perimeter. But Ader can barely see. With one hand maintaining contact with the wall, he reaches out with the other, blindly feeling around. His hand hits the back of a chair. He sort of gives it a nudge, but it's weighted down by something, almost like someone's sitting in it. He reaches up to where he'd expect a head might be and feels a face. Ader goes to lift the person out of the chair, but he can't get a good grip. Something's wrong. They keep slipping out of his grasp, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know if the person is alive, but they feel like dead weight. He goes to lay them on the floor so he can try and lift them in a different way. As he lowers the person onto the floor, he realizes he's laying them on top of another body. Ader manages to carry the first person out to the hall and hands them to another firefighter to bring to the medics outside. He turns back and, finding the doorway to that same smoke-filled bedroom, he sees his lieutenant has just arrived to help. Ader goes to the spot where he found the second victim on the ground and begins to lift them off the floor. But across the room, his lieutenant says, Help me lift this person. I am, Ader insists, with his hands under the arms of the second body. That's when they both realize they're holding different people. There's a third victim in the room. There are a total of three victims. I copy, Chuck 2. Chuck 2, what side are you on? Let's get off. Three victims. Removed. Second floor. See Delta Quadrant. They're all out front. All need medic units. The recordings are a little hard to understand. We'll need medic units. That's what the firefighter says. Outside 3201 Woodland Drive, three victims lay in a row on the front lawn. They're covered in blood. The firefighters can't really figure it out. There's not usually that much blood at the scene of a fire. They wonder if there had been an explosion of some kind. The medics work frantically, and one of the victims is lifted on a stretcher and rushed to the ambulance nearby. It's been a surprising 25 minutes, and not in a good way. Ader takes a seat on the curb and starts to process what just happened. He removes his mask and draws a breath of fresh air. Up until now, the smoke had clouded his vision. He was using his hands to get around and navigate his way through the room, through the house. This is the first time he's seeing what's on his gear. He looks down and sees something red. It's definitely blood, and it's on his mask. It's covering his turnout gear. It's on his boots. It's on his gloves. After he suits up to go back inside, 
Ader finds that thick smoke upstairs is starting to clear, and he finally gets a good look at the bedroom where he found those three people. There's only one way to describe it. It's a bloodbath. The room inside the bathroom, too, is a crime scene. The police are now on the way. It's clear to everyone on the scene, the bloodied victims pulled from the upstairs bedroom weren't simply overcome by smoke. And there's still another gruesome discovery for firefighters inside the other bedroom, across the hall, where Lieutenant Hershey and other firefighters are working to put out the fire. Lieutenant Corey Goats is working backup. He's crawling toward a window when he kind of falls into a hole in the floor. The heat from the fire had burned so intensely, it melted the bed. The floorboards had given way, creating almost a crater in the middle of the bedroom, filled with blackened bed springs and something else. When Goats trips into that hole, he brushes against something, part of a body. He reaches up to confirm his suspicions and feels what might be a small knee. He reaches farther to feel another leg, and then his gloves land on what feels like a head. It's the charred body of a child. It is being called a major crime scene as homicide investigators examine a house that caught fire in northwest D.C. The room is a crime scene. They found four people, including a child, dead inside on the second floor. Right now, it does not appear that this was just a random crime. I said, but what happened? They said, we don't know. They killed the whole family. Police have said they believe more than one person is responsible for the crime. A wide-reaching manhunt for Darren Wentz, stretching all the way to New York City. We had the DNA on a piece across. How did his DNA get into that house? Got a package that I'm going to need you to bring down to me. To do what he did to four people, including a 10-year-old boy, is just beyond words. They were brutalized, and we saw the evidence of that. The jury has just reached a verdict in the murder trial of Darren Wint. He was going to strike the American dream just by committing murder in mayhem. This is 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true crime. Now, breaking news from WTOP. We're now learning more information about the dead bodies found inside a northwest D.C. home that was on fire earlier this afternoon. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says four people were found dead inside this home, including a child. Now, they found them when going to the house for the report of a fire. That's what WTOP, a D.C. all-news radio station, reported a few hours after the fire started. My name is Megan Cloherty. I work as a reporter at WTOP and remember changing gears from the story I was working on that day to making calls on this fire as soon as we learned that firefighters found people inside. I continue to work the story for the next four years, following it from the initial days of investigation through the six-week trial that I covered with my colleague Jack Moore. But like the investigators piecing together initial details coming in that day on May 14, 2015, I had no idea that the deadly fire was the final crime 
in what we'd learned was two days of terror. This is shocking. Virginia Schofield, who normally walks down Woodland Drive Northwest, found it blocked by police tape as crime scene investigators go through the home. It's a very peaceful neighborhood. Linda and Hank Beebe live nearby and came home to dozens of police cars and fire engines. Came down the street and we saw all this commotion. One man who didn't want to be named or interviewed recorded video on his smartphone of firefighters climbing onto the burning home to put out the blaze and get inside. That's my colleague Mike Marillo reporting from Woodland Drive. The day after the fire, on May 15th, police publicly identified the victims the firefighters found inside the house. Three of them were family members, 46-year-old Sava Savopoulos, his wife Amy, who was 47, and their 10-year-old son Philip Savopoulos. The fourth person killed was 57-year-old Viralisha Figueroa, who was one of the family's housekeepers. Police made it clear they didn't die in the fire. There was evidence they'd been tortured. This case came to be known as the Mansion Murders, a catchy epithet by news outlets around Washington, in part a reference to the Savopolis's posh neighborhood. But little was known about what actually happened inside the house or who was responsible. It would be a week before investigators named a suspect, and much longer before he went to trial. Three years after the D.C. mansion murders of the Savopoulos family and their housekeeper, the case is going to trial. But today, the suspect met the jury pool. Some Between the two of us, my colleague Jack Moore and I were inside D.C. Superior Court every single day for the better part of two months, sitting on the wooden benches inside courtroom 203. You'll hear more from Jack throughout this podcast. Prosecutors said it was a case that nightmares are made of. And it was. The trial was far more dramatic than we ever expected, with days that genuinely surprised us and testimony that we didn't see coming. Day by day, the questions we had about the case slowly began to be answered, but it seemed as soon as we knew one detail, another didn't make sense. This podcast is about what we learned. It's about what happened to the people who were killed inside that house on Woodland Drive on May 14, 2015. It's about the man who did it and the questions that the trial didn't or couldn't answer. The Savopoulos's were a loving family, and they seemed to have it all. Sava Savopoulos was a successful businessman, the CEO of a construction and metalworking company called American Iron Works. The company was previously owned by Sava's father, an immigrant from Greece who came to the United States to build a family and a future. By the time Sava took over in the early 2000s, American Iron Works had become a multi-million dollar company. Amy was a devoted mother of three, the couple also had two teenage daughters who were away at boarding schools at the time of the fire. Amy would write them letters every week, signing each one XOXO Mom. She was funny, vibrant, down to earth. Their 10 year old son, Philip, loved Harry Potter and Hot Wheels, like a lot of 10 year olds, but he was special. He was wise beyond his years, thoughtful. He went to a private school in D.C. called St. Albans on the grounds of the National Cathedral just about a 15-minute walk from the Savopoulos' house. Every week when Philip would talk to his older sisters on the phone, he'd ask them what was going wrong in their lives so he could pray for them at chapel. Vera Lisha Figueroa was a nurturing soul. She went by Vera, the family's housekeeper, a wife and a mother herself, with two adult children in El Salvador, where she was from. She worked in part to send money back to her children, and once a year, at Christmas time, she'd travel home to see them. She was looking forward to retiring soon, to moving back home to El Salvador to be with them. Before they were brutally killed, many people thought the Savopoulos family seemed to represent the American dream. 
You know, they were a wealthy family. There's, uh, I mean, that's not that they were ostentatious about it, but it was, they were definitely lived in a big house and they had also a um, vacation house and they, you know, went on nice vacations and Amy drove a Porsche and, you know, so they, you, you knew that they were a wealthy family, but she was, Amy in particular, who I knew best, I could say this about, was just terribly, terribly down to earth. That's Margaret Pressler. She got to know Amy when their sons were younger and both went to the same private school called Beauvoir. She just was a really nice person, completely just humble and lovely and just not dressed up when she went to school, which at Beauvoir, you actually saw a fair amount of that. You did see a lot of the moms drop off, not me, who were dressed to the nines. And so Amy and I in our schlubby sweatpants and so on would drop off our kids and then stand around outside talking about whatever. It was just she was, you know, she didn't feel, you know, different than anybody else. She was just lovely and um, very chatty and talkative. Um, She was a bit of a worrier. She was, you know, somebody she worried a lot about her kids. Their boys also played together on a local club baseball team. Philip played third base. Margaret Pressler's husband coached the team. And Amy and Philip and his father, they often would all come together and we would all it was a sort of a family fair. And, you know, again, it would be long days on Sundays, often doubleheaders, and we would all hang out there in the cold or the heat or whatever it was. But it was good. It was very, um, just very sweet and simple and family-oriented and very much focused on the kids. And that was kind of the way everybody was. And, and Philip was a good kid. And all the kids were good kids. Yeah. When Margaret Pressler learned of the murders, she was stunned. It didn't make sense. She said it was like trying to think about the idea of infinity. No matter how hard she tried, she just couldn't make her brain go there. She said she remembers going to the funeral with her son. It was a big traditional Greek Orthodox ceremony at the family's church, which sat in the shadow of the National Cathedral, just one block away. This was my story that aired on WTOP that day. As the doors of St. Sophia's opened and three cherry wood caskets were carried out, draped in white flowers, surviving daughters Katerina and Abigail Savopoulos stood on the church steps, watching as their mother, father, and brother Philip's caskets were placed into waiting hearses. I didn't get a chance to see them, but the grief must be something unspeakable. High school friend of the couple, Joel Thomas, says it was standing room only in the church where hundreds came to mourn. Family friend Maria Paliocrasas described it as beautiful. I think the service focused on the fact that these three amazing people have gone to a better place and that we should emulate the example of service that they left behind. Also in attendance, young friends of Philip who went to school across the street at St. Albans. At the funeral, Margaret Pressler says she was acutely aware that her little boy, sitting next to her, was the same age as Philip. There were three caskets laid out that day, the smallest one for Philip. When I, I was there covering it and when you saw that small casket mm-hmm. come out of the hearse, mm-hmm. I mean, your heart just dropped. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Just so heartbreaking. And and again, I remember sitting there looking at that and going, really? Did this really happen? Like it hadn't sunk in yet? No. I, I mean, again, it's hard for something like that to sink in. We just don't – we're not like raised to think about things like that happening. I mean, it just – the depravity of it is – it was such that you just you can't even you just can't even imagine. And then just the sadness of the two girls losing all of their family members and and the horror of what these poor people went through. It just was hard to 
Okay, just hard to process it. Hey, Murder Made Me Famous fans. Thanks for listening to 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. At the end of this episode, we hope you'll take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. New episodes will be released each Monday. It's difficult, but we need to say something about the way they were killed. We've reported on this case for years, and even now, the details are hard to stomach. The Savopoulos family and Vera Figueroa were held captive for nearly 24 hours. Their wrists and ankles were duct-taped to the chairs in the upstairs bedrooms. There was evidence they were tortured, suffocated with plastic bags. While they were being held captive, Sava Savopoulos made a series of calls to his business to have a large sum of money, $40,000, withdrawn from the company's account and dropped off at his house. The request was odd, but it didn't seem to raise any red flags, and the money was dropped off, no questions asked. Then they were killed, and it wasn't a quick death for any one of them. Repeatedly stabbed, beaten with a baseball bat until they bled to death. Prosecutors say it's clear some of the victims saw and heard the others being killed one by one, that they knew the fate that awaited them. Then the bedrooms where they endured that torture were doused in gasoline and set on fire. Philip, the little boy, might still have been alive when the fire started. What I just can't get over is the 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 anger that that this man must have felt towards these people. M- maybe towards these people in particular, maybe towards any people who have that kind of what seems like an easy, opulent life. But clearly he felt just, you know, such tremendous, you know, hostility. Like it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. It's just hard to imagine that, that such an, you know, such a nice family could be the victim of something so depraved. It's does make you really think about, you know, how, how bad people can be. It, it does. And, and boy, I'll tell you when I have seen his picture pop up on TV or, you know, when I saw him in the courtroom, I actually tried not to look at him. I just, I feel pretty angry back. Yeah. The man Margaret Pressler is talking about is Darren Wint. This podcast is also about him. Twelve years earlier, Darren Wint had worked as a welder for American Iron Works, the company run by Sava Savopoulos. He was fired for missing work. Police linked him to the killings through five pieces of DNA evidence, including his saliva on the crust of a Domino's pizza that had been delivered to the Savopoulos mansion while the family and Vera were being held captive inside. If you've heard about this case before, maybe a few years ago when it first happened, that pizza might be the detail you remember. After three long years, the case finally went to trial last fall. It started with a plea. In a blue shirt and yellow tie, Darren Wint stood up in court, his shoulder-length dreadlocks pulled back behind his neck, and he entered his not guilty plea to the judge. During the trial, his lawyers claimed it was actually his two younger brothers who carried out the killings, and those two brothers had tricked him into going to the house on Woodland Drive, had tricked him, basically, into implicating himself in the crime. But the jury didn't buy it. Breaking news on WTOP. Guilty on all 20 counts. That is the verdict in the murder trial of Darren Wint, charged with killing three members of a D.C. family and their housekeeper in what has become known as the D.C. Mansion Murders. Darren Wint still maintains his innocence. And in this podcast, you're going to hear a lot more about what he says happened. But we should be clear. 
This is not a whodunit. We sat through the trial, all the evidence, and we have no reason to question Darren Wynn's conviction. During closing arguments, after this nearly two-month trial, more than 70 witnesses, including detailed expert witnesses who tested DNA and those who culled through Darren Wynn's digital profile, the lead prosecutor admitted to the jurors there were gaps in the government's case. They said it's a case that nightmares are made of, and it started to feel like a bad dream as we tried to piece together the parts of the story that didn't make sense or are just missing. Sort of like one of those dreams when you wake up and you know where the dream ended, but you can't remember how it started or how you got there. There are parts of the dream that are clear and others that are fuzzy and don't make logical sense. This podcast is also about that, what we don't know, those lingering questions that we wonder if we'll ever have answers to. For one thing, how did Darren Wint find his way to the Savopolis house in May 2015? Yes, he worked for Sava Savopolis's company and had been fired, but that was 10 years before the family was killed. And there was no evidence presented at trial that he knew where his former boss's family lived. Another question, did Darren Wint have help? From the beginning, many people seemed to think that the crime was too complex for one person to carry out alone. Even the police thought so in the early days of the investigation. And there are parts of the crime that would probably make more sense if someone else was involved. Perhaps the most frustrating and haunting question of all is why. During the trial, prosecutors said Darren Wint was motivated by greed. Remember the $40,000 ransom? At the time of the killings, Darren Wint's life seemed to be spiraling out of control, and a lot of it had to do with money, money he didn't have. He was out of work, hadn't held down a full-time job in years, and his living situation was precarious at best. Originally from Guyana, Darren Wint had immigrated to the United States in 2000, along with his younger brother and sister. But by 2015, his green card had expired. During the trial, the lead prosecutor, Laura Bach, said Darren Wint wanted things that he couldn't have, and he decided he was going to take it from the Savopoulos family. Still, something about the greed explanation just, it just doesn't feel like enough. Not for how brutal the killings were. A 10-year-old child was burned alive, for money? After he was sentenced, a reporter asked the prosecutor, Laura Bach, about Darren Wint, about how he compares to all the other murderers she's helped put behind bars over the years. She said, there's nothing. There's no remorse. In his mind, he thinks he's a victim in all this somehow. Evil, I guess. But it's that last part, I guess, that's so frustrating. She says he's evil. It's such a bold statement. And then she backs off. It's telling in a way. Even the person who worked for three years to convict him of murder doesn't know why he did it. After this long, complicated trial, which you're going to hear a lot more about in this podcast, we still don't know who Darren Wint really is, but we're going to try to fill in the gaps. Members of the Savopoulos family have never talked to reporters. Silence, at least in public, is the way they've dealt with their grief. We sat behind them in the courtroom for weeks. They knew our faces but we were told to give them space, and we did. After the trial, we reached out to the victim's advocate at the prosecutor's office to see if any family members would be willing to do an interview for this podcast. We never heard back, and we took that as our answer. One person who wanted to talk was Nalita Gutierrez. She knew the Savopolis family well and was close with Vera. Hi, we're here to talk to Nellie. We went to her house to talk. Hi, Nellie. Her parents answered the door. Good. Yeah, this is my mom. Hi, I'm Megan. 
We wanted to talk to Nellie because of the perspective she has. She worked for the Savopoulos family as their housekeeper for 20 years. She knew the house inside and out. She owns a small cleaning business that Vera worked for and worked alongside her for more than a decade. Yeah, Vera was a very nice person. She was, um, Vera and I, we have a very different personality, but we get along. I never have any issue with Vera. Vera moved to the U.S. from El Salvador in the mid-90s. We've seen pictures of her. She has a round face, a shy smile, and bright eyes. Nelly says Vera loved bachata music, like this. She lived in Silver Spring, Maryland's suburb of D.C., and took a 45-minute subway ride to the Savopolis neighborhood. After moving here, she reconnected with a man she had known back in El Salvador when they were both younger. Eventually, Vera and Bernardo Alfaro decided to get married. His daughter, Claudia, says Vera was like a mother to her. Was she quiet? She was quiet, but maybe because um, her English wasn't that good to communicate. So when Emmy asked me to work for um, the Christmas party, I, and Emmy asked Vera to come also for help. Mm-hmm. So Vera said, well, I will go if you take me because I don't want to you know mm-hmm. uh, she wants to make sure she can speak and communicate and yeah. yeah so she always stay in the kitchen and I always go in around and offer wine and and, and so if I ha- if I have too much stress so Amy always said have a glass of wine or chop a tequila so then you're gonna be relaxed <laughs> <laughs> for parties oh my gosh because was Amy Amy was really funny though yes because every all these little stories I've heard about Amy, she's very funny. Yeah, she she was a very funny person, and uh, and she enjoyed life a lot. Over the years, Nellie became more than just a housekeeper to the family. They came to rely on her. Yes, she was taking care of the house, but she was also running errands, taking the dogs to the vet, shuttling Amy to appointments and lunches. She says the Savopoulos family was very busy. Plans were always changing, and they could be demanding at times but they were also extremely generous. When the family took a trip to the Virgin Islands, they asked for Nellie and Vera to join them to help get the house set up. Vera was so good, you know, very honest and hardworking, but she was a little concerned that she cannot communicate very well. So if I said to her, I'm going to be there, no problem. So when Amy asked us to go over to St. Croix, and she said, okay, if you go, I say, yeah, of course. And mm-hmm. we, we went together. And when the women were done with work, Amy and Sava put them up for several days in an exclusive St. Croix resort. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Nellie, it's Megan Cloherty. It's about 11 o'clock on uh, Wednesday. I first met Nellie before the trial, when the case was still making its way through a series of preliminary hearings. We kept in contact during and after the trial. And when we finally sat down with her, it was a few days after Darren Wint had been sentenced to four life sentences, the harshest penalty in the District of Columbia. It doesn't have capital punishment, so the death penalty was never an option. Nellie was asked to be there to give a victim impact statement to talk about her friend Vera Figueroa and the family she worked for for two decades. But she couldn't make it. You didn't want to go? Well, I felt so guilty, Esther, because what happened was I took my school that day. Yeah. She runs a business, has kids of her own, and her father is not in good health. Still, she says she's racked with guilt that she couldn't make it to the sentencing. But then I felt so guilty. I cannot sleep. 
because you didn't go. Mm-hmm. I have I have these problems with me. Like if I do something, I felt fine, but then it's something like is is emotional, you know. It's like you feel like you have to do everything you can for the family, but you still have to get your life done. You still have to pick mm-hmm. up your daughter, and yeah. but you've has you've told me before that you feel guilty. Like you feel so much oh, guilt. Yeah. Still. Still. Mm-hmm. Why though? For me, because they tried to call me, and so I still thinking maybe they want me to do something for them. She feels so guilty, she says, because the family tried to call her when they were being held hostage, but she missed the call. Maybe they thought that I can come over, but then I was thinking, okay, what happened if I went over there and opened the door and these men got me too? The way she tells us, it's like everything happened yesterday, not four years ago. May 14th, 2015, the day of the fire, the day of the murders, was a Thursday. Around 9.30 that morning, Nellie was sitting at her kitchen table, drinking a cup of coffee, when she got a text message. It was from Amy. I'm making sure you do not come today, the message said. Then there appears to be a typo. The message continues, if you could come from or Monday, that would be great. Nellie thought the message was strange. Thursday was a day Nellie might normally plan to stop by 3201 Woodland Drive, but usually Amy would ask her to come ahead of time. Plus, Nellie said she had other clients to work for that day. She texted back, Hi, Amy. I don't have any plans to go over there today. Monday is fine. Thank you. But then things got weirder. It turns out that wasn't the first time the family had tried to reach her. Hey, Nellie, it's Sava. I hope you get this message. Um... The night before, Sava had called and left a voicemail, saying Vera was planning on staying the night to help care for Philip because Amy wasn't feeling well. Amy is in bed sick tonight. That's just part of the voicemail. You'll hear the full thing in the next episode. It's too complicated to play it right now, but for a number of reasons, it made Nellie suspicious when she first heard it. The only problem being, she didn't hear it right away. She didn't hear it until the day of the fire. It was later that afternoon while she was working for another family in McLean, Virginia, about a 30-minute drive from the house on Woodland Drive, that she got a call from Sava's mother, Gail. She said there'd been a fire at Sava's house. She didn't sound too worried, though. But at that moment, she was sounding that she, it was okay. And she said, can you go and check for me, please? And I say, oh, yeah. But since the message, the mm-hmm. text message, and no respond, I was shaking. The voicemail from Sava, the strange text from Amy, and now a fire? Nellie knew in her gut something was wrong. She dropped what she was doing and raced to Woodland Drive. I dropped like crazy. I remember very clear that Behind the National Cathedral, I, I cannot find parking space. It was completely full. So I left my car, everything, and I ran. It's not an easy run. From where she parked, it's at least five minutes at a full run, and it's uphill. When she gets to Woodland Drive, she sees the house is surrounded by fire trucks. There's an FBI van and news cameras everywhere. A detective blocked her way. You cannot go this way. I say, yeah, I have to go. I had to check on the family. And that's what he never told me the truth. Nellie was frantic. She didn't know why the police weren't telling her what was going on. A neighbor recognized her and came up to her. But when she asked him what happened, he just gave her a hug. He said to me, I'm going to pray for you. You have to be very strong. And I said, but what happened? Meanwhile, her phone kept buzzing. 
It was Sava's mother, who was out of town, desperately trying to find out any information about the fire. The police asked Nellie to get in one of their cars. She thought they were taking her to the hospital to see Vera and Amy. I keep asking the police who was driving me over there, and I say, I need to know because um, this is uh, Sawa's mom. Mm. She wants to know if they're doing okay. And they say, I don't have any information. So then when he parked the car, I said, homicide department. And I said, what is this? They told me that they're going to take me to the hospital to find out what is my friend. So I, because she, this lady was with me on the phone. And I told her, this is not the hospital. It said that homicide department. She said, no, you have to be kidding me. I said, yes. You have to wonder if this is the moment Sava's mother realizes things have gone horribly wrong. Nellie was taken to a small room and handed a bottle of water. She says it was just like a scene from the movies. The detective began asking her questions about how long she'd worked for the family. And she told him about the voicemail from Sava and the text message from Amy and even showed the detective her phone. And then Mrs. Abupolo, she, she said, Nelly, where are you? I said, I'm here with this, uh, the police. They asked me questions, say, but why? I said, I don't know. They didn't tell her anything for several hours. They kept her in the dark. It wasn't until 6.30 that evening, about five hours after the call for the fire first came in, that one of her friends called her. It was just after the nightly news came on, with details of what firefighters and police had discovered inside the Savopolis's burning mansion. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. Um, they're not in the hospital. They're gone. And I say, are you kidding me? He said, yes. Yeah. They say that four victims, um, the little boy, two women and a man, they don't say any name, but it has to be them. I said, no, that's what I cannot take him. Nellie broke down when she heard the news, overcome with emotion. She fell to the ground. The whole time she felt the detective was watching her reaction. She pulled herself up and went over to him, taking his hand. He looked at me like this. I said, that's the truth because my friend just called me and said that they killed the whole family. That's the truth. Well, when he told me that, because it was like, I thought that he was, the, that wasn't the truth. But when he told me, yeah, that's the truth, and you have to help me with all this information, I said, but what happened? They said, we don't know. They killed the whole family. And after that, May 14th, my life changed. I never got to this. Last fall, prosecutors called Nellie to testify at Darwin's trial. She was one of the first witnesses to take the stand during the six-week trial, and after talking about her relationship to the victims, she was asked about those phone calls and voicemails she received from Sava and Amy Savopoulos during those two horrific days. I tried to tell myself, like a day before, don't look around, go straight and concentrate and focus about the question and all that stuff. So when, when they called my name, I went straight. I never had the chance to look around. I went boom. So when they start asking me those questions, I was fine until... Until they played Sava's voicemail in court. Hey, Nelly, it's Sava. I hope you get this message. Um, when he said, Nelly, something happened to me like Sava was behind me, that he was around because he sounds so 
like I I I remember the way he talks. So for me, it was like I cannot take this anymore. I cannot believe you're gone. On the next episode of Twenty Two Hours, an American Nightmare. Flight change of plans tomorrow. I've got a package that I'm going to need you to bring down to me. And Nelly Gutierrez wasn't the only person to receive a call from the family while they were being held hostage. We pieced together Vera and the family's final 22 hours through phone calls, text messages, and eyewitnesses. When I heard that this had happened, the first thing I said to my husband when he called me was, oh my God, I saw Amy yesterday. I saw her. This podcast was written and produced by Jack Moore and me, Megan Cloherty. Julia Ziegler is our content advisor. Music in this episode is Haters Hate by Ramon Messam, Bashada Night provided by Lyra Pond5, Passing Time by Kevin McLeod, and Beyond the Lows by The Whole Other, available in the YouTube audio library. Thanks for listening. You can leave us your questions on our website, 22hourspodcast.com, or at 22hourspod on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, which lets you know when a new episode drops. 22 Hours, an American Nightmare, is a production of WTOP in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to Episode 1 of our new podcast, 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. We'd also like to thank the Murder Made Me Famous team for letting us drop into their feed to share it with you. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll subscribe. New episodes will be released each Monday.